to you all who's going to be preaching um, in my place today. Um, I'm, I'm excited for this moment, for this time. Uh, we've listened to Tony's preaching many times, and we enjoy some doing it again. I asked Tony, uh, I forget when it was, maybe this past summer, if he, would, if he was going to the Gospel Coalition Conference, if he would like to stay a few days and minister to us at church, and by his kindness, he's decided to stay. Um, he's had a good time ministering to the men on Saturday, helped the music team on Sunday. He's a musician in his own right, uh, has helped lead worship there at the church at Grace Bible Church in Pleasant Hill, California. It's where we go every summer. We're looking forward to spending some time uh, again this summer. As I think of Tony, I think some of the things that characterize him are the things that characterize us. When, when, uh, when I'm out and talk to people about Rock Valley Bible Church and I say, what, what characterizes your church? I remember preaching a sermon this one time and just the crystallization of my thoughts. Really, three things. We are those who believe in the power of God. Just the power of God to save. And uh, therefore, we preach and teach the doctrines of grace. And Tony believes in the power of God and preaches and teaches the doctrines of grace. We believe in the power of the Word of God to sift into the hearts of God's people. And therefore, we preach expositionally. That is, just let the Bible come and speak. We don't need to have our own topics pushed on the Bible. Let the Bible speak as it does. That's what exposition means. And Tony does that and embraces all those things. So does Grace Bible Church. And also, as I think about Rock Valley Bible Church, I think we as a church believe in the power of the gospel. That is the gospel for the unsaved. That is the gospel for the saved. And therefore, as a church, we are focused upon Jesus Christ. We are Christocentric in all that we do as a church, remembering Jesus. And that very much characterizes Tony and Grace Bible Church. And so he comes up here as one who's, who's in very many ways set a course in California of Grace Bible Church. A course that I would love for us to follow in because it's a, it's a good course, a biblical course. It's a course that follows the glories of Jesus. And so I look forward to Tony ministering to us today. And I told him we normally finish about 1130, but you all are gracious. So uh, we'll just let him, I, I'm sure you'll, you'll be encouraged by the end of the time. And uh, hang around afterwards, talk to him. would encourage you to do that. So come, Tony, open the word to us. you all. It's great to see you. It's my joy and privilege to be here. Uh, over time, I've gotten to know the Brandons a little bit as they come and visit uh, and get some dry heat in August. And then they come back here after a few weeks of that dry heat back here to your wonderful country. It's my first time in this part of the country. I've visited Chicago before, but never come this far uh, on this side of it. So I'm just pleased to be here. Great privilege to be here. Our church is meeting back at home. Uh, I have a wife and uh, of almost 30 years. This uh, September will be 30 years. And our three children, the first two are married. And I'm about to have my first grandchild. So I'll be a grandson. That'll be in May of this year. So I've had some practice staying with the Brandons a little bit and visiting with some of you guys and your families, your children. Uh, it's kinda, I'm going to have to warm up, I think. I'm going to have to like, get back in the groove to do that. Well, our time this morning is going to be in the book of Romans, and our text is chapter 8, verse 28. I know many of you are familiar with this verse. What I like to do, is, though, is, um, is read a little bit of the context leading up to that verse. So, Romans 8, and the verse is 28, which says, and We know that God causes all things to work together for good to those who love God, to those who are called according to His purpose. But let's... Let's get a running start. So why don't you let me read them from 
verse 18 on. Okay, from verse 18 on. For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory that is to be revealed to us. For the anxious longing of the creation waits eagerly for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of Him who subjected it, in hope that the creation itself also will be set free from its slavery to corruption into the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation groans and suffers the pains of childbirth together until now. And not only this, but also we ourselves having the first fruits of this Spirit, even we ourselves groan within ourselves, waiting eagerly for our adoption as sons, the redemption of our body. For in hope we have been saved. But hope that is seen is not hope. For, for who hopes for what he already sees? But if we hope for what we do not see, with perseverance we wait eagerly for it. In the same way, the Spirit also helps our weaknesses. For we do not know how to pray as we should, but the Spirit Himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. And He who searches the hearts knows what the mind of the Spirit is. Because He intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. And we know that God causes all things to work together for good to those who love God. To those who are called according to His purpose. This is the Word of God. Let's let's pray and ask for His grace and help this morning. Father in heaven, look down upon us in this time together in your mercy and your grace and act upon us. Work in our hearts and minds. Help us, God, to hear you speaking through your servant, through your word, by the power of your spirit. Help us, instruct us, illumine us. Convince us, encourage us, and place Christ before us in all His glory, we pray. That we might walk with You. That this congregation might more deeply, more profoundly, Lord, follow You and lift You up and find joy in the Gospel. We pray these things in Your name. Amen. Amen. In 1979, I was much younger. And I was driving too fast in an Italian sports car with my girlfriend to my right and, my, and her sister in the back seat. I was driving on a windy country road and I was being cocky and showing off. And I thought I could you know, do anything and live forever. And I was driving too fast. I didn't understand the power of these little cars. I downshifted right on a curve. And right there, there was a rancher's driveway and all this gravel that people pull out as they go in and out. And right as I downshifted, suddenly it felt like we were just on ice. Just on ice. The car started spinning like this and time stood still. It went end over end twice. 
Then it rolled twice. Then it ended up upside down in the middle of this lonely little country road. Woke up. There was blood everywhere. I was the first to uh, awaken under the circumstances. At that point, it was the most incredible, shocking, fearful thing I'd ever been through in my life. And right at that moment, it was impossible to trace or to understand what was happening and why this was happening from the perspective of God's call and from the perspective of my choices in my life. It was impossible to even begin to think about that. But, as the years go by, it becomes clear. It was that moment that put the fear of God in my heart. Because of the accident, by God's grace, both the, my girlfriend and, and her sister were okay, and so was I. The blood uh, was not from major injuries. But it was that accident that dr- drove me to go home that night and open up my sock drawer, of all things, and pull out a Bible I'd had hidden in my sock drawer. I'd hidden it there because a friend of mine had witnessed to me about Christ for several times, and I finally asked him to get out of my life and stop talking to me about Jesus. I didn't want him in my life anymore. He gave me this Bible said, here, you might need this someday. Uh, being mystical and raised as a Roman Catholic, I didn't want to get rid of the Bible because I thought God would kill me. Something would happen. You know, I imagine lightning or something. So I put it in my sock drawer. And it was years later, after that accident, that I pulled out the Bible. The accident led to my reading the Bible. I read through the New Testament several times. And I read through the Gospel of John several times because he had put inside this Bible instructions to read through the Gospel of John. He had put a little tract on the inside of the Bible cover and I read the tract and there I understood the Gospel. And three months later, 90 days later or so, I came to faith in Jesus Christ and gave my life to Him. It was impossible in that moment, that day, to trace how God would work through all that, to be encouraged by what was happening, to see any good ever possibly coming from what I was experiencing. Now, of course, I'm able 30 years later, 32 years later or so, to trace what is called providence, to trace what some have called the invisible hand of God. God's invisible hand at work in these events in my life. You know, it's always difficult to see God's hand in bad things. It's easier, I think, for us to start trying to see God's hand in good things, but in pain and suffering, it's difficult. You know, we aren't required to see it, but we are required to trust Him. Required to believe that God is involved in all the events of our lives. Cowper wrote a hymn that we sing at our church. I know you guys do too here. It says, God moves in a mysterious way His wonders to perform. He plants His footsteps in the sea and rides upon the storm. Deep and unfathomable minds of never-failing skill, He treasures up His bright designs and works His sovereign will. Ye fearful saints, fresh courage take. The clouds you so much dread 
are big with mercy and shall break in blessings on your head. Judge not the Lord by feeble sense, but trust Him for His grace. Behind a frowning providence, He hides a smiling face. I think it's easier to sing that when things are going pretty good. It's harder when things are tough. Uh, I've found Romans 8.28 to me to be a life verse, a promise to live by. Uh, old country preacher that I heard preach this, the first time I ever heard a message on Romans 8.28 many years ago, he entitled it, Romans 8.28, A Soft Pillow for a Weary Head. Here's a place to rest. A place to find comfort. I know that all of you are not facing some difficulty today, but some of you probably are. There's a lot of people in our church facing difficulty. A lot of people have lost their homes in California. A lot of people have lost their jobs. No doubt there's some of you here. Uh, A lot of people are underemployed now in California. Uh, Right before I left, I found out that my mom had once again been diagnosed with most likely cancer again. She had originally we had, had been taken out about a year ago. That was right before it came on this journey. It's impossible to trace the hand of God on everything and try and figure out what He's doing, but He calls us to trust Him. Even in the difficult times, even when some, if I put it this way, even when some evil, some wicked thing, some wrong is done against you and me. Is God's hand really somewhere in this? Can we trace His hand in all circumstances of our life? Well, the doctrine of embedded here in Romans 8.28, though it may be difficult to understand in some ways, it's not some abstract concept because it's in a letter written to a church. church like yours. church like ours. This is Paul writing to a church he's never met before and he wants to preach the Gospel to them. And that's what he's doing in this letter. He's unfolding the riches of the Gospel. Right at the beginning in chapter 1, verse 15 and 16, he says he longs to come and preach the Gospel to them and have some fruit among them. Don't miss that. He's preaching the Gospel to a church. And embedded in this Gospel is this promise. This is part of everything that Paul is saying to them. And why does he have to say this to them? Because something very important to grasp, that the Gospel brings all this hope and all this promise, tremendous power into our lives, but it doesn't bring all of it into our lives at one time. When a person becomes a Christian, he receives the beginnings of his salvation. But there's a whole lot of it still in escrow. It's out there. It's waiting in the future. But Paul preaches a gospel of grace and power where he says you are now dead to sin. You are alive to God. and We're under grace. The reality is, Romans 7, we still struggle with sin. Romans 8, we still have to bury our dead. So where's all this power you're talking about, Paul? Is this gospel for real? And so Paul introduces in Romans 8 the ministry of the Spirit. He says, listen, essentially he's saying Christians are unique because we live in the midst of two ages and we're the only ones that live in two ages. 
We live in the present age. The present age is the age when evil is still here, when sin is still here. But the future age, the age to come when sin will no longer be present, that's already broken into our hearts and into our lives. But we live in these overlapping ages. And that results in frustration. And that's what Romans 8 is about. He says even the creation has been subjected to futility. You ever feel like life's futile? Like the Christian walk is two steps forward and one big leap back? And then three steps forward and two steps back? And that's why He says our hearts groan within ourselves. We want to we be done with this. But He says, listen, the sufferings of this present age... The overlapping age are not worthy to be compared with the glory that's going to be revealed to us. But if we're joint heirs with Christ, then we have to suffer. No cross, no crown. That's what he said up in verse 17. If in, we are fellow heirs with Christ, if indeed we suffer with Him so that we may also be glorified with Him. But how do we survive in the present? How do we survive in this age of frustration and difficulty? He says, you must remember the Spirit. He intercedes for us because we don't even know how to pray sometimes. And the Spirit is constantly interceding for you, my Christian friend, Especially at those points of deep travail and trial when we do not know how to pray and we know, He says, that He who searches hearts, that is, the Father, He who searches hearts, knows what the mind of the Spirit is when He's praying for you and me. Why? Because the the Spirit, verse 27, intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. And because that is true, verse 28 is true. Because the Spirit will always be interceding for you and me in times of great difficulty and we know He will always intercede correctly according to the will of God. Because of that, we can know verse 28. And we know that God causes all things to work together for good to those who love Him, to those who are called according to His purpose. For those people who have to live in this, in this time of frustration, in these overlapping Ages. So that's where this verse is embedded. You need to see that. Now, let's ask five questions of this verse and we'll move through it together. First of all, who is doing all this working? Who is working? It says, and we know that God causes all things to work together. God causes all things to work together. I emphasize this. You say, wasn't that obvious? It says there... That God causes all things to work together. You know why I say that? Because it's, uh, the word God is not in all translations. Because God, that word God, is not in some of the earliest manuscripts, the Greek manuscripts of the Greek New Testament. And therefore, some translations won't put the word God. So, for example, in the ESV, a great translation, it says this, For those who love God, all things work together for good. And so the subject there is the all things. The all things work together for good. But who's working the all things? Do all things just work themselves out for good in life? <laughs> Do all things just kind of always work themselves out to good? No, absolutely not. How about chance? Do things just work out by chance for good ultimately for Christians? For believers? Absolutely not. The Bible never presumes that history is working itself out all by itself and ultimately it will be good for these people that are called Christians. It doesn't work out by chance. I think it was R.C. Sproul who says that chance is nothing. That is, it's a no thing. 
Chance is nothing. There is no personal being that has all power out there called chance who's working everything out for you and me so everything works out good. No, no. It's God who's working all things together for good. There is only one who is good, says Jesus. And He is the one who alone can work all things towards good. And that is our Creator God, the Father in Heaven. Our God. He is the one who's working things towards good. So God is behind all the events of life. And because of that, it's fair to do what the New American Translator has done, the American Standard Bible has done here in translation. They put the word God in there. Why? Well, because God is the one who works all things together. It's for good. It's implied. And in fact, we're told elsewhere in the Bible this many times. So, for example, even in difficult situations, we have to think of verses like this. Exodus chapter 4, verses 11 through 12. Exodus 4, 11 through 12 says, Who has made man's mouth? Or who makes him dumb or deaf or seeing or blind? And then it says something we would not expect if we're new to our Bibles. Is it not I, the Lord? Is your hand in that? Is it not I, the Lord? Then Proverbs 16.9 says, The mind of man plans his way, but the Lord directs his steps. God was directing my steps that day when I turned that corner and downshifted at the wrong time and was clueless about cars. And, but He was also directing my steps when I survived the accident. We plan our ways, but God directs our steps. We're also told by Jesus in Matthew 10.29. Remember these words? They're very profound. Listen to what Jesus said. Remember this. Are not two sparrows sold for a cent? Meaning what? That, that, that's just a small detail. Little sparrows. I mean, are we all walking around worried about the sparrows? Well, in California, there's more people worried about sparrows. Yeah, that's true. But... Really, you know what I mean? (laughs) Aren't they just one cent? And then he says this, and yet not one of them will fall to the ground. Such a minor detail as a sparrow dying somewhere out there in the woods when no one's looking. Not one of them will fall to the ground apart from your father. Now, I tend to remember that verse as apart from your father knowing about it. But that's not what it says. He doesn't fall apart from your Father. Period. God is behind all the events of life. He is the one working all things. So that's the answer to the first question. Second question. What is included in the all things when it says, and we know that God causes all things to work together for good. What is included in the all things What Paul primarily has sufferings and difficulty in mind. He's thinking about these two ages and the struggles that Christians face. Again, what Paul says in in verse 18 has to stand out. I consider that the sufferings of this present time, this present age. The sufferings of this present age. The groanings that we go through. The difficulties. the, uh, The aspirations that get smothered. The plans that get changed. The goals that are never attained even in the church, even in ministry, the sufferings of this present time. 
And then he takes it to the end of the chapter and he says, I'm convinced that neither death nor life nor angels nor principalities nor things present nor things to come nor, nor height nor depth nor any other created thing shall be able to separate us from the love of God which is in Christ Jesus. What he's saying is all these things in life, the sufferings of this present age of having to live out a life of faith, walking by faith in a, in a time when when it will be met by tremendous frustration or difficulty or pain or suffering, which Paul himself knew greatly. And he knew these Roman church was beginning to experience. And he doesn't want them to see that that's inconsistent with the gospel. It's part of it at this stage of, of our journey, this part of our walk. All things fit into that. And so the all things include the painful things in life. Let me put it this way. There is nothing in your life Follow this closely. There's nothing in your life that does not fit into the all things. If all things is a big bucket, there's not one or two things that didn't fit into the bucket. Where, you know what? God was involved in a lot of stuff in my life, but you know that accident when I turned that corner and I, and I spun out? He was not in that. That didn't fit. No, everything fits in the bucket labeled all things. It has to. Everything is part of God's plan. I want some of you who are indeed facing some difficulties right now, just take a moment, pause, and think about this. Have you thought about this yet so far? That the thing that you're going through right now actually fits into the all things? That God is working together for good in your life? A Christian has to live like that. You and I have to live like that. Let's just be honest. It's not going to work out the way you plan it. You know, many, you know, pastors like myself, like Steve, and I was just talking to a bunch of pastors at the, the tables, you know, at this conference. We're idealists. But if you're a biblicist, you're somebody who understands the Bible, you have to also be a realist in this sense. You, I have to strive for ideals constantly. Christ's church must Continue, it must build the kingdom, it must extend its influence, we must be united, we must get together in conferences like the one I went to, you get all pumped up of that because there's 5,000 people singing praises. Reality is, a lot of the guys in those room, in those rooms, you know, their churches are falling apart, they're losing their jobs, they don't have any money, uh, they're going to go back and be let go, their wives are sick, their children, what have you. Because the present age, not the age of consummation yet, we walk by faith. And in this time, the all things that we're experiencing are part, everything you're experiencing is part of the all things that God is working towards good. And we live by faith. We follow Him by faith. You know, the book of Ecclesiastes makes this astounding statement. In Ecclesiastes 7.14, it says this, In the day of prosperity, 7.14, be happy. Isn't that a great one? In the day of prosperity, be happy. That's why I ask guys when they say, say, it's a good time in your church right now. He says, yeah, it's a good time. Be happy. Rejoice, man. In the day of prosperity, be happy. But in the day of adversity, consider God has made the one as well as the other. That we might be humble. That we might submit ourselves to Him. That we might see Him in His glory. That we might walk by faith and not by sight. And he says the same thing in chapter 3 of Ecclesiastes, verse 11 he has made everything appropriate, or another translation would be beautiful. He's made everything beautiful in its time. Because it fits the exact time that God needed that and wanted that to come into your life. 
And so everything fits in there beautifully like this huge jigsaw puzzle. But you know the problem we have with, with life with, in this way is that your life is like a jigsaw puzzle, but God is having you work on it upside down. So you don't see all the pieces and they all fit. There's, the only one that sees the, the front side of your puzzle, the one who's designed it, and he stands over it, and he knows how it's all fitting together to finally come together to make that picture. So what's included in the all things? All things. <laughs> Including the difficult things of our lives. Now the third question, how do all things work together for good? How? This is an important one. We'll go a little longer on this one. Okay, how? How is it that all things work together for good? Well, I want to focus on the work together part here, first of all, because that's the key here. How is it that all things work together for good? God is, causes all things to work together for good. That verb can simply mean work. Just by itself, it could just mean work. And in some context, it's translated that. And so this leads some scholars and some Bible commentators to say this, that things work out to be good. Meaning, this bad thing here can, can work out to this good thing over here. And this bad thing over here can work out to this good thing over here. And so forth. But, these things don't work out on an individual, individual basis. What Paul is saying here is that all things work together. Because God is working them all together unto good. In other words, you know, my, it's, it's not like this. It's not like if I, as, as I stub my toe an hour from now, I should expect something good to come from that. You know, my grandma from Central America was a, a kind of a mystical Catholic from Central America. And so she's the one, the one taught me to think like that. You know, if I stub my toe, she'd say, aha, that was for yesterday when you looked at me the way you did. And so, and so, I mean, that's why I hid my Bible, because I was scared. I, always, I thought that's the way it works with God. You know, it's just, you walk around, you're, you're afraid of how it's all going to work. And that's how some people look at this verse, that a bad thing will work itself out to good. But that's not what Paul's saying. Um, that, that little preposition connected to the verb has to be taken literally here. God causes all things to work together for good. Together. It's when all things come together under God's hand and control that it works to good. But all things have to come together. In other words, all the pieces of your life, follow this closely, this is, we have to, this is brain you know, enlarging, very difficult. Every little piece of everything in your life and all of the people's lives in this room, under God's plan and His design, because He's such a glorious God, such a powerful God, an eternal God, they will conspire and converge together to make ultimate good under the hand and plan of God. That's what he's talking about here. They all converge and conspire and come together. And part of the things in our lives that conspire and come together with other things are bad things. It's hard to hear, isn't it? Like losing your job. Like having a disease. That's part of the things. But they have to all come together. It's not that this will become good, but they will conspire under the plan of God to ultimate good. Let me illustrate it this way. I've had the privilege of 
being with the Brandons last two days. I think probably if you've been there, most of you know that Yvonne's a good cook. And yesterday, she baked a pie. You probably didn't know that Stephanie can help also to bake pies, but she did. If I went into the kitchen, and I've been known to do this at home, wouldn't dare do it at the Brandon's house, but if I went into the kitchen and started grabbing some of the ingredients from the pie, one by one, and had them by themselves, would they be good? Well, Stephanie gave me a little slice of an apple to taste, so that was good. But suppose you went in there and grabbed your, you know, two spoonfuls of flour and put that in your mouth. And then took some of that salt, put that in your mouth. Then cracked an egg in your mouth. Maybe you ought to drink a little milk at this time. Swirl it around your mouth. Is that going to be good? That's what it's like when we try and figure out what God's doing with the, the, the flour, the egg, the salt, and the things in our lives individually. But take all those things, take just the right amount of each one, mix them real good, and then put them in an oven for under 350 degrees for a good hour or so. And what comes out? Mmm. Mmm. Something really good. Something really good. God is cooking, so to speak. And your life is coming together like those ingredients in that pie. But it's not until you have all things converging together that you have the pie. Right? When do we have all things so we can have the pie? When are all things done? When all things are done. Would that be next year? Well, I don't know if the Lord's coming back. Well, let's say He's not coming back in 10 years. In 10 years, do we yet have all things? No. 20 years? No. We don't have all things coming together until all things that are ever to be to come together have all come together. And when is that going to be? At the end. We don't have all things converging together until God opens that oven, so to speak, and pulls out that pie, which is representing your life. I'm sorry to reduce your whole life to a pie, but you get the illustration, right? And it's at that moment that all things have come together to make something beautiful. And that's our lives. Here's another illustration. Uh, I used to be a, a musician and did some recording. And back in my youth, we would record in studios. We would record in 16-track studios, so 32-track studios and so forth. Nowadays, you record on, uh, digitally on computers. And uh, back then, you recorded on tape. So every track... Every track, well, let's say, would be an instrument or a part of an instrument, a piece of an instrument. And so if you had 16 tracks, you had tape that was about this high. You guys remember what tape is? Recording tape? Okay. And if you had 32 tracks or more, you had, you had sometimes tape that was two to three inches high. Four-inch tape. And you can imagine, picture all these lines on that tape. And each line would be a recorded sound or track. And so if you, if you brought up channel one, maybe you brought up the bass drum all by itself. So all you would hear by itself would be. And that's it. That was all you hear. If you brought up another track, maybe that was a hi-hat. So all you would hear is. That's it. If you brought up another track, maybe it was me singing. You would hear me like, you know, catching my breath. Going, Doesn't sound good by itself. 
But you put all those 32 tracks or 64 tracks in the hands of a master engineer and he brings up certain tracks at certain times and he brings out certain tracks. He blends them all. He, it's what's called mixing them down. He mixes down. And what you have at the end is what? An amazing recording of a beautiful song. Now it's done. And that's what the Lord is doing. He's working. He's causing all things to work together for good. The things individually may not be good. Just like taking the flour and putting it in your mouth at one shot. That would not be good. And the, some of the events in, your, in our lives are not good in and of themselves. In fact, they're evil. Some of them are wrong. They're wicked things. But the astounding thing is this. That God could even use those and He's planned them to be part of our lives. And He will bring that ultimate good out of it. That just blows my mind. I don't know about you. You have to accept this by faith. You have to really see this and trust that God's Word is true. You say, how can evil be one of the ingredients of, of my pie that God's baking, which is my life? That's not fair. But it is. It's part of it. It's what God has told us. And if we don't accept this, even though it's impossible to understand it fully, we become guilty of what some people have called dualism. Dualism is the idea that there are two equal powers in the universe. That you have good and you have evil and they're like this, fighting each other. And you have God and you have Satan and they're fighting each other. Or how about Star Wars? You have you know, the dark side of the Force and the good side of the Force. and They're, they're equal, but it's not like that. There's one sovereign who is over all. And even Satan and all evil is under him and serves his purposes. Like Martin Luther, the reformer, used to say, yes, there's a devil, but he's God's devil. And he has him on a chain, on a leash. And he only does what God sends him to do, and he will always fulfill God's purpose. That same country preacher used to put it this way, everyone works for God whether they know it or not. That's the astounding thing about God. You say, come on, really, yes, let's think about this. How, how bad it would be if it wasn't true. That, that, that's, there's a saying that says, if God isn't big enough to control the bad things, as well as the good things, then we're in deep trouble. If He's not big enough to control the bad as well as the good. So the answer to this is not dualism, that there's two equal powers. Uh, even evil has to serve God's purposes. And that's what's called biblical compatibilism. You don't need to remember that. But what that means is God is sovereign. He's in control of all things. And yet, there is evil in the universe. And, and all people who do evil are responsible for their own actions, even though that was part of God's plan. They're both compatible. That's what the Scripture teaches. It doesn't explain to us exactly how, but it teaches that is true. Let me give you two examples, Okay. Two examples. One from the Old Testament, one from the New. The one from the Old Testament is the life of Joseph. You remember the life of Joseph? Joseph is one of the twelve sons, right, of Jacob or Israel later, and his brothers became envious of him because their father showed some favoritism to him. And so what did his brothers do to him? They sold Joseph into slavery. What a cruel thing to do to your brother out of envy. And so Joseph was sold into slavery by God's providence, that invisible hand. He ended up being the servant of a man called Potiphar, a powerful man. But then, unfairly, he was accused and he was put in prison. And Joseph spent 13 years in jail because of his brothers, we would say. 13 years in prison. 
And then again, the visible hand of God came about again, and Joseph interpreted the dream of, of, uh, of, of, of Pharaoh's uh, cupbearer, the man who tasted the wine to make sure it wasn't poisoned. What a job that was. And also uh, uh, Pharaoh's uh, baker. He interpreted their dream. Uh, they were released, but he spent time there in jail. Ultimately, Pharaoh also had a dream. You remember this? And the cupbearer told, um, told Pharaoh about Joseph, a man, a Hebrew that was in jail who could interpret dreams. So Pharaoh called Joseph out and Joseph explained Pharaoh's dream. Remember the dream? He told him there will be seven years of, of famine in Egypt to be followed, excuse me, seven years of prosperity in Egypt to be followed by seven years of famine. And Pharaoh ought to prepare for those years of famine because God's letting him in on what he's going to do. And Pharaoh said, there's no better man to handle all this than you. And so he made Joseph the second most powerful person in the greatest empire in the world at that time. And his brothers eventually were starting to starve, so they came down to Egypt to get food from Pharaoh. And lo and behold, who's in charge of distributing the food? Joseph. And so they become very frightened, but Joseph is kind to them. He cares for them. Uh, eventually they move into Egypt. That's how Israel ended up in Egypt. But after some years, their father died and now they're afraid again. They're afraid that Joseph's going to do what? Get revenge. Because their dad's gone. And so they come to Joseph at the end of Genesis. Genesis chapter 50 at the end. They come to Joseph. They fall down on their knees and say, you know, don't take our life. We are your servants. Verse 18. And, and here's Joseph's response in verse 19. He said, Do not be afraid, for am I in God's place? And then comes this astounding statement. Listen carefully to it now. As for you, you meant evil against me. What is he talking about? When they, when they sold him into slavery, he said, You meant evil against me. And then he says this, But God meant it. God meant it for good in order to bring about this present event that people's lives are being saved and the promise was being perpetuated and so forth. How many it's are there? There's only one it. It's not that you meant it for evil and then God did this other thing over here to try and counteract you because He's trying to keep up with your evil. He says you meant evil. God meant it. The very same thing you did. God was in it too. But He meant good in it, you see. Every act, follow this, everything that happens, every decision, every act, has two wills involved. The will of a human being and the will of God. And while you meant evil, he says to his brothers, God meant it, the very same it, to be good. You think Joseph thought it was good when he was in prison? But God meant it for good. That's an astounding thing to think about. That's the Old Testament example. Everything that happens on this earth, every decision, every act has two wills involved and the will of the human being involved or however many human beings and the will of God behind the very same act. The other act is the greatest injustice that Steve mentioned earlier when he said this was a great injustice. And what was that? The crucifixion of Jesus. They meant it for evil. God meant it he wasn't caught by surprise. It wasn't, oh no, maybe I can bring good from this. No, he meant it 
for good. And so we read in the book of Acts in chapter 2 and chapter 4 that this took place by the predetermined plan of God. You nailed them to a cross. You nailed them. You're responsible. But it was all part of the predetermined plan of God. You meant it for evil. He meant it for good. It was all His plan and yet you did your part and you're going to be held accountable for it. But He meant good in it. That's astounding. But that's what God is doing in our lives. And even the devil and evil fits into it, such as the injustice against Jesus and the injustice against Joseph. Picture a chess game. Some of you play chess. Picture a heavenly chess game and it's between God and the devil. And they're sitting there and the devil's thinking for a long time and how to ruin your life. And he finally picks up the piece and he moves it. And he looks at God and says, your move. Well, according to what we've studied, God would say, that was my move. And the devil would say, what do you mean that was your move? You meant it for evil. I meant it for good. And by the way, you'll be held accountable for moving that. Why? Well, you picked it up and moved it, didn't you? Yes. That's astounding. But that's what's happening in this world. In the lives of countless millions of people. This is the thing that God is doing. God is bigger, bigger. Much bigger than our minds can grasp. Much bigger than our logic the answer, I mean, the question everybody asks here is, how can this be? How is it possible? How does it happen that God could mean the same thing, someone means for evil, for good, and yet He holds them accountable for what they do? Here's the answer. I don't know. The Bible does not explain that. It says they're compatible. It says human beings are accountable for their choices, and yet it says that God has, is behind all human choices, everything that ever happens. He has other plans and yet He holds people accountable for their actions, just like we just imagined in that chess game. That's what's happening. Thomas Watson of Puritan summed it up in one sentence. It's a tricky sentence. Hear me out, but listen carefully. Here's what it says. Here's what Thomas Watson said. God always has a hand in the action where the sin is, but He never has a hand in the sin of the action. <laughs> So if you're going to quote me, please write it down because you've got to get this right. Otherwise, somebody will say, he said that? <laughs> listen, listen. God always has His hand in the action where sin is, but He never has His hand in the sin of the action. You meant it for evil. God meant it for good. He cannot sin. And He's not the author of evil. Fourth and fifth question, more briefly now. I said that was the longest one. Fourth question, what is the good that God is causing all things to work together towards? What is the good? And once again, we shouldn't see it as this bad thing will lead to this good thing. This bad thing will lead over here will lead to this good thing over here. Sometimes in life we can't see some of that and God graciously help us, helps us see some good that comes from some of the things we experienced. Like in my accident, I would have never seen that. I would have never known that. I would have never thought that was the farthest thing from my mind that I would end up here in the pulpit 32 years later preaching about this. I had no idea. 
maybe a year or two later, I could see that the accident had led to my conversion. But that's not what he's talking about here. The good that he's working all things together towards, it's not this thing will lead to this good thing, this bad thing will lead to this good thing, but there is a specific good that Paul has in mind here when he says all things are going to converge and conspire together under the hands of our sovereign loving God. In the end, they will all work towards this good. Verse 29. Not just 28, but in verse 29, when he says... For those whom He foreknew, He also predestined to become conformed to the image of His Son. That's what He's working all things together towards. That's the good. The good is this. The consummation of our salvation. The consummation of our redemption is this. You and me, despite of all of evil's desires and all of the evil plans against us, despite your own sins, you will be conformed into the image of God's Son. You will look like Jesus Christ. That is awesome. That's the culmination of this Gospel that Paul preaches. It's not just a ticket to get into heaven. It's not just a ticket for forgiveness. It's a redemptive project that God is doing. He is sustaining us through this life. And the ultimate good is this, that He's working all things together for good. And that good is this, that you are going to be conformed into the image of His Son. And Jesus, our Lord and Savior, is going to have accomplished a complete and full redemption where He is surrounded by brethren who share His, what, His nature in that sense that we are glorified like Him. <laughs> that just, and all the pieces of life have contributed toward this process like chiseling away at your life and your character to prepare you for that last transition at the end. That's what God is doing. That's the ultimate good that He is bringing. You have to look that far because if all you look for is the good that's going to come from this next week, you're going to miss it. The good that God is bringing about is your transformation into the image of His Son ultimately. That's what God is doing. And if you look too close and don't look that far, you're going to grow discouraged. You're going to miss it, brothers and sisters. If you're looking for the good next week, you're, you're, you're not looking far and long enough. What does Paul say in chapter 8? If we have what we hope for, then we can't call it hope. We hope for what we don't have yet because that's what it is. It's hope and God's going to bring it about. He's going to transform us into the image of His Son. Ephesians 2, 8-10 through 10 says, For by grace you've been saved through faith and that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God not as a result of works that no man should boast, right? For we are His workmanship. The word means poem. You are God's poem creation. His workmanship. Created in Christ Jesus. The project's not done yet, but it's begun. You were created in Christ Jesus unto good works, which God prepared before Him that, you should, that we should walk in them. You are, the church is going to be a masterpiece creation of God's handiwork. And you know what some of the chisel blows are going to be? Some of the great sufferings you're going through right now. And even some of the evil that's been brought into your life. Some of the sufferings. And even some of your wrong choices, some of your sins, are going to eventually contribute to that chiseling away. And God, somehow, in His majesty, in His sovereignty, in His awesomeness, He's going to bring about this in the end. Created in Christ Jesus. 
to be a work of art that displays the wonder of who Jesus is and what He has accomplished for us because He has taken our humanity all the way. Jesus is done. He has, raised, he has risen from the dead. He's taken humanity to that final stage and we're following Him. He's the first fruits. We're going to be there. That's the good that He is bringing about. For whom? Last question. And we know that God causes all things to work together for good to those who love God. And since almost anybody could say, well, I love God. Well, he says, no, listen, those who love God, I'm speaking of those who have been called according to His purpose. Called here doesn't mean invited. It means called by the Spirit. Because later in verse 29, it says those whom He's called, He's He's justified them already at the cross. And He's glorified them in in Christ Jesus. So, He is working this only on behalf of who? Could you answer me? On behalf of who? Christians, believers. That's it. The called, the elect. And even the things that are meant as evil against you, they conspire in the hand of God to be part of what contributed to the ultimate good of what God is doing. That's how awesome and great your God is if you're a Christian this morning. There is nothing outside of His control. Being chiseled isn't fun. But God can make a tremendous work of art and that is His ultimate goal. I told the guys yesterday in 2004 I was able to travel to Italy to take my children to meet my grandfather before he died. And they did. He died eight months later. I was just so glad we did this. We had no idea it was that close. While we had some time off, we went around. You know, of course, we did the things people do in Italy. You're going to go see some great things. And we went to a great museum, the Academia, and there we saw uh, great works of art. And, and they really, they've set it up. They know what they're doing. You go there and you walk around, you're looking at these works of art. And listen, the place is a work of art. The building is a work of art. You know, these things are a thousand years old. You know, it's not like around here. And you see, you just, you're just seeing all these things. It's tremendous. And then right at the very end, you're walking and they have it all set up. There's this corridor and it's lit just perfectly. And then the corridor makes a hard right turn. And while I was walking, I'm watching people ahead of me and they make that right turn. And as soon as they make that right turn, what I see them do, they just go. And then they disappear around the corner, right? And so I'm going, oh man, what is this? So you keep walking, you fall, and finally you turn the corner. And what do they have? They have this Michelangelo statue of David set up at the end of this long corridor a dome over it, and Michelangelo's David is set on a pedestal, and it's perfectly lit, and everything's on it. So as soon as you turn the corner, you're just like, whoa! And I would have never thought it was that big, that tall. It's huge. I don't understand how he crafted this. Redemption that Jesus, our Lord and Savior, has achieved, he has done by submitting himself willingly to the Father's will, He took upon Himself the wrath that you and I deserved. He was buried. He was raised three days later. And He has taken our humanity up to that ultimate place of being a masterpiece. A work of God's gracious and powerful sovereign hand. And all of you, all of us who are Christians on that day, will marvel at Him and then will marvel at this, that we've become like Him because of His grace and His power. Isn't that awesome? God moves in a mysterious way. His wonders 
to perform. He plants His footsteps in the sea and rides upon the storm. Ye fearful saints, fresh courage take. The clouds you so much dread are big with mercy and shall break in blessings on your head. May God really encourage you in the Gospel and enable you to walk by faith, trusting in His incredible promises that He is in your life at work. He loves you. He's bringing about a great purpose in the end. Someday that oven's going to open, folks. And out is going to come the new creation. And you and me are going to be part of it because of His grace. Let's praise Him both in song and prayer now as we finish. Bow your heads with me. Let's pray. Lord, God in heaven, it is, this Gospel is so wonderful. It's so awesome. It's impossible, Lord, for us to grasp it fully, to see it in all of its glory. But we thank You, God, that embedded in this Word, embedded in the Gospel, is the promise that even our sufferings and even the evil that's done against us will one day serve the creation of a masterpiece where we will be made into the image of Your beloved Son. God, fill us with joy in the Gospel. Fill us with anticipation. I pray for this congregation that they would have hope. Hope in Christ. Hope in the Gospel. Hope in the resurrection. As they celebrate the resurrection next Sunday, may they have hope in their hearts that You are at work in all of their experiences bringing about this ultimate good because Your power is so great and Your love is so deep and Your arms reach so wide. Thank You. Precious God in Heaven, help us to love Christ and what He's done for us. Encourage the weak and the frail and those who suffer now, I pray in Jesus' name. Together, let's say, Amen.